Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Anyone here for the first time tonight? Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to anybody joining us for the first time on our Zoom group. Get rid of that. Um, I'd like to start class by asking you to talk to each other before I lead a meditation and, and give a talk about the topic. So uh, I'll give you the topic out up front. I'm gonna try to focus on um, the Buddhist teaching on non-attachment, letting go, um, accepting the impermanent nature of all things and um, trying to see how much suffering we create for ourselves when we cling, when we get attached. And uh, the practice, the antidotes to the suffering that is uh, based in attachment is non-attachment in a simple way, letting go or letting things be impermanent rather than trying to create permanent structures out of that which is constantly changing. So as you reflect for a moment on your personal experience in this lifetime of living with impermanent relationships and places and things and attitudes and outlooks and in living in this world and thinking of all the things that we cling to, that we're attached to, the things that we, su we suffer about um, because we're totally convinced that they should be different than they are. So it's pretty, pretty easy to come up with a list of things we, should, we believe should be different than it is. And um, so just reflecting on that for a moment, and what is something that you would like to let go of? Maybe you're trying to let go of something that you know I'm a bit attached to this view or this person or this place or this thing or uh, this, uh, you know, sometimes we're just really attached to a self view, something about ourselves that we're kind of an old story. I am like this because of something that happened maybe a long time ago and we're still sort of attached to the self view. What is something that you're trying to let go of? Does that make sense? Can you easily identify something in your life that you're trying to be less attached to, not attached to? And maybe, you know, there's that humility of like, well, I'd like to be less attached, but I'm not very good at it. Uh, you know, I, I haven't quite been able to extricate my identity from being attached to you know, what kind of shoes I wear <laughs> or, or, you know, my subculture or my political views or my, um, you know, views about who I am in this world or who I think other people are. Um, you know, so when you're thinking about attachment, don't only think about material things, but think about one of the, uh, things that the Buddha repeatedly comes back to in his teachings is how much we suffer based on clinging to fixed views. 
we get a view, an opinion, a perspective, and then we get attached to, I'm right, they're wrong. And uh, that really tricky thing in life of being able to be right without being so attached to your view of being right, that you're suffering about other people not agreeing with you, not also being quite as wise and enlightened as you are, and, and suffering about like uh, that attachment to that view. So I hope that's enough for you to discuss. Now I do these breakout rooms just for like five minutes. So maybe there'll be three people that you'll talk to. Think about talking your, your own kind of, I'd like to let go of, think about talking for one minute. So if you're at home and you're in one of these breakout groups, think about you have like a minute to express yourself in this small group. Um, and so you're conscious of there's two or three other people that are also gonna take a minute or so to express themselves so that you're not that person who's taking four and a half minutes and then all of a sudden it's over and everyone else just listen to you in your small group so think about you and you have to self uh time yourself because i can't do i guess i could but i don't um so go ahead find find two other people in the room that you don't know yet and talk about non-attachment and at home i'm going to put you in small groups welcome back Hope that you got an opportunity to reflect on this a little bit with each other. Part of the reason that I do that is just so that you meet each other so that against the stream becomes a place where you're building community and you're talking to each other and, and, and it's, a, it's a central aspect of, of Buddhism to develop wise friendships and meet other meditators and, and develop uh, hopefully long-term connections with people that have the same values and intentions that you do. So hope that works. I hope that also helps the people at home feel a little connected to not just being on the screen, but being able to talk to each other. So we'll practice mindfulness meditation. Anybody that's new, uh, reminder, mindfulness is present time, awareness, bringing our, our full attention, our awareness to our present time experience and the body and the breath, the sensations, emotions, thoughts, our whole human experience, present time awareness. And there's a um, aspect of mindfulness, which we're trying to bring non-judgmental uh, awareness, not judging what's happening as good or bad or right or wrong, but just to see clearly I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, these kinds of thoughts are coming, these kinds of emotions are present, these kinds of sensations. So not judging any of it as being any, um, you know, good or bad. The second foundation of mindfulness is where we are putting attention on uh, what is perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And of course, it's, um, that's where we can see a lot of the attachment of something pleasant is happening, or uh, there's often a, an almost automatic clinging attachment to pleasant experiences. And um, if something um, unpleasant is happening, we could also call the aversion uh, to the pain, uh, attachment to it being different, craving for it to be different, uh, attachment to uh, being comfortable rather than accepting discomfort. 
and being non-attached to comfort. That's a big one for us all to learn, breaking our attachment. I don't know if anybody used that. I'm working on being less attached to being comfortable, I'm working on being less attached to um, not being in pain. Um, so we'll, we'll meditate and I'll give some instructions. And mindfulness reveals that everything's impermanent. You know, and so I can say this, but we have to see it for ourselves. Every thought, every sensation, every emotion, everything that we experience is in motion, is transient, is arising and passing. It's one of the ways we talk about it. Um, if that weren't true, maybe attachment wouldn't be so necessary. But because of impermanence, attachment, uh, non-attachment is uh, necessary for our happiness because things are just moving too quickly and clinging creates suffering every single time on some level or another. Or, or at least eventually it does. So um, we'll look at that in our meditation practice and then we'll have some longer discussion about it and some of the Buddha's teachings after the meditation. So find a way to sit where you can start with comfort and then uh, accept any discomfort that comes. Finding the posture that feels appropriate, upright, relaxed. Making any adjustments necessary so that the spine is erect without being rigid. So that the body is sitting upright without being unnecessarily tense. Allowing our eyes to be gently closed our jaw to be relaxed, released. Even just the way that we can tense our shoulders or clench our jaw, tighten our belly, the form of clinging, resisting. So try to let go of the tension, try to soften. Establishing a inner intention to be patient with your self, with your experience, to be friendly and kind towards your body, your heart, your mind, as much as you can, meeting yourself with kindness, non-judgmental, present time, kind awareness. What it feels like to be sitting here in this moment. With each exhale, softening any tension that you can, releasing, letting go.
and spend a few minutes giving your full attention to the sensations that the breath creates breathing in feel receive the sensations that the breath creates breathing out feel receive be aware of the sensations that the breath creates as you exhale no need to control or manipulate your breath in any way just let your body breathe its own natural rhythm however your body wants to breathe deep or shallow long or short it doesn't matter it's the quality of attention that you bring to it that's the main practice here Usually it's our thoughts that draw our attention away from the mindfulness of the breath. Maybe it's a sound or something else, but often we get involved in thinking. It's a natural process, not your fault. But rather than indulging in the thoughts that are calling for your attention, try to disengage, let go of participating in that thought and choose to bring your attention back to the body, back to the breath. We're not trying to stop the mind from thinking, it's just what it does. Just as the heart beats all by itself, the lungs breathe all by themselves, the mind thinks. Mindfulness shows us that we can choose where we place our attention. We can break our addiction to obeying the mind, thinking the thoughts, and choose to come back to the body over and over.
when you find yourself in a thought, perhaps just replacing it with the two words, let go. Let go of identification with what the mind is up to, thinking about the past or the future. Let go and return to the present time experience in the body. Begin to investigate the feeling tones, what's pleasant, what's unpleasant, what's neutral right now in your body. Feeling the upright posture, the contact with the chair, cushion. You notice tension in your jaw or shoulders, belly. Mindfully releasing, softening. If your body becomes uncomfortable from sitting still, bring mindfulness to the unpleasant feeling tones, the pressure, the throbbing, the aching, whatever it is, rather than avoiding it, turn towards it. Perhaps breathing into it, softening. you're new to this kind of practice, just keep coming back to the breath. But the Buddha's instructions expand to inviting us to turn our mindfulness towards the thoughts, to observe, to investigate. Try to turn towards your mind and let every thought that comes arise and pass without getting involved. Just knowing that's a plan, that's a memory, that's worry, that's hope. 
That's judgment. Being aware of what the mind is experiencing, is thinking. Without clinging to our thoughts, without believing them, just observing.
arising and passing of sensation, emotion, sounds arising, passing, thoughts arising, passing. Attempting to not interfere with the impermanent nature of things. Not try to keep anything, let it all go. Not trying to stop or get rid of even the unpleasant, allow it to arise and pass. As you sit with your mind, your body, the tendency to be attached to our own views, opinions, ideas, attached to our memories. Contemplating this teaching from the Buddha where he said, there's nothing worth clinging to as I or me or mine. Seeing how attached we are to ourselves, 
nothing worth clinging to, nothing worth suffering about in this human experience as I or me or mine. Watch how your ego doesn't like that teaching, rejects it, the view, the opinion, the rebuttal. Imagine letting go completely of a sense of I or me or mine. Awareness just resting in the phenomena of thoughts and sensations arising and passing. The Four Noble Truths of Buddhism uh, state that there is a, a level of suffering that is natural, universal, unavoidable, that just comes with life, just comes with taking birth, just the, the suffering of living amidst impermanence and uh, loss we all experience loss everything arises and passes the, the ordinary grief and some level of sorrow of living with the impermanence of people all of our 
loved ones dying, people changing, um, the, the, the suffering of aging and sickness and death, the, the suffering of being met with unpleasant experiences that you'd rather avoid, being kind of unavoidably experiencing pain, difficulties, uh, challenges. And the first, so second noble truth is, uh, you know, because then the question is, well, why is it like this? Why, why, are, why are we born into a experience and a, a realm where there's all of this suffering? Why am I not just happy? <laughs> How come I can't just be at peace and at ease and free from suffering? And so the second noble truth points to the universal reality that we're all born with a repetitive craving system. I think, uh, you know, the Buddha didn't use this term, but I believe it's just survival instinct. We're all just born with this evolutionary biology of a scared animal, a craving animal that we're, you know, we've evolved somewhat, but not that much. <laughs> and uh, second noble truth, repetitive clinging, repetitive craving causes all of the suffering in our life. It's not the cause of our pain, but the more you meditate, the more you see, oh, it's not really the pain that's the problem. It's my craving for the pain to go away. It's not the pleasure that's the problem. It's my clinging, my craving for pleasure to last longer and be more sustainable but it's too impermanent. Pleasure arises and passes. Pain comes unwelcomed over and over throughout our day, throughout our lives. So the practice in the um, second noble truth is relinquishing, identifying clinging, how we're causing suffering by clinging to some impermanent thought, feeling, experience, view, opinion, and let go, relinquish. It is uh, easier said than done, right? You probably, most of you read some Buddhist books. <laughs> you know, the answer is non-attachment. Uh, we have the information, we're trying to let go, but it's not, you know, but we're, we live in this human system that not very good at letting go, wants constantly telling us, I know you should cling, you should crave, you should hate unpleasantness, you should take pleasantness hostage. <laughs> not so conscious like that, but when you start looking at the patterns, that's what we're doing. The Thai forest master, Thai forest monk, um, Ajahn Cha. They now call him Lungpur Cha. Ajahn is the Thai honorific, Thai name for teacher, for like uh, honored teacher, Ajahn. And, um, but once the Ajahns, the monks, um, get to a certain age, I think it's maybe 60 something or 70 or like so many years as a monastic i don't know maybe it's 40 once they cross like i've been in the robes for 40 years or 50 years they start calling him lungpur instead of ajahn lungpur means um grandfather kind of old older elder not just honored teacher but you know grandfather 
Lumpur Cha one teaching, one of my favorite teachings, I say it a lot, most of you have heard it. Uh, he says, maybe, you know, we, we, there's, you know, in Buddhism, there's the Four Noble Truths, there's the Eightfold Path, there's dependent origination, there's the hindrance, there's all of these lists of teachings. And then for the monks, there's the Vinaya, their uh, precepts, all of the renunciation, 327 um, or 220, I don't know, hundreds of different levels of um, precepts of renunciation that they practice. And um, then there's the kind of the rituals of, you know, how you wear your robes or uh, how you enter the, you know, temple, the Dharma hall and how you bow and what you chant. And there's all of this, you know, it's religion, right? So there's all this rules and, and rites and rituals. And uh, Lung Por Cha was his whole life a monastic. Ordained young, he disrobed for a little while, then reordained, but lived his whole life um, pretty much in the monastery, certainly his whole adult life. And he said, and a lot of Westerners came to him and, and studied with him in the Northeast of Thailand. And he's, I never met him, but he was my, my teacher's, several of my teacher's teacher, my teacher's teacher. And um, there's this one quote where, even though he knows all of the teachings and knows all of the, you know, Buddhist psychology of the Abhidhamma and all of the suttas and, you know, deeply well-studied, um, you know, wise, wise being. He said, maybe we overcomplicate this whole Buddhist thing and we could just boil the whole Buddhist path down to just two words, let go. And that if you are letting go, you are practicing Buddhism. <laughs> and that rather than overcomplicating things, let go. And how practical that that is, because when we look at, you know, like think of think of something you've been suffering about lately. But if you let it go, if you let go of suffering about that. And you know, watching how the mind wants to argue with, oh no, I like can't let go of that. Can't let go of my suffering. It wouldn't, wouldn't be, who would I be without my suffering? And there's a um, bit of a poetic teaching where he says, um, and just, you know, playing along with this, thinking about it, he says, if you let go a little bit, let go of your views, let go of your opinions, let go of your material, sensual clingings. He said, if you let go a little bit, you will have a little bit of happiness. And so thinking of where we're at in this process, how much happiness do you have? And, you know, how much attachment, craving, clinging is getting in the way of happiness? He said, if you let go a lot, and um, I think one of the important things about this, I'll come back to the letting go, as I was saying in the second noble truth, relinquishing, but we can't just do it. The eightfold path, living an ethical life, letting go of killing and lying and stealing, letting go of sexual misconduct, letting go of intoxicants that cloud the mind and make it impossible to be present and mindful. All of that is letting go, but it's really the meditation that shows us 
uh, brings um, intimacy with impermanence. So that it's not just an intellectual idea, but a meditative knowledge, a wisdom that comes from sitting with your pain, sitting with your impermanent thoughts and emotions that really leads to the skill of non-clinging, being able to tolerate what's arising and passing, being able to allow the mind, uh, you know, and have that discernment of what thoughts are worth thinking and obeying and contemplating and what thoughts are just let them go. Without meditation, I don't think people actually have the ability to do it. But with a long-term meditation practice, you start to see, oh, I, I, I can have more discernment and more ability to not be so identified with those thoughts and feelings that are ultimately just going to create suffering. I can let that go. So there is a meditative transformation towards this whole process that Ajahn Chah is boiling down to saying, letting go. Meditation will lead to that ability, not just the idea, but the actual embodied insight and wisdom of non-clinging. So he goes on, he says, the, you know, when you get there, if you let go a lot, and you're more and more in your life, in your relationships, in your uh, endeavors in this world, approaching it with non-clinging, with letting go, he said, you're going to have a lot of happiness. You'll have more and more sense of ease and well-being. And there's some equation here, you know, the less attachment, more happiness, more attachment, less happiness. And then, you know, the third, you know, a little bit, a little bit of happiness, a lot, a lot of happiness. And he says, if you can let go, absolutely. Now, letting go absolutely is a little bit also of that reflection at the end of our meditation tonight. Letting go of clinging to I, me, and mine. Letting go of that identification that uh, we are our minds or that we are these bodies or that we need to um, protect this ego self and be too identified with uh, I, me, and mine. Because if you can let go, absolutely. He said, then you'll know the happiness of the Buddha. Now, this is the, you know, enlightened wisdom, total non-clinging. And he uses an image. He says, then your mind will become uh, calm and still like a forest pool. And you can kind of imagine what that imagery, and this is, you know, somebody from the northeast of Thailand who lived most of his life in the jungles there. They're called forest, Thai forest tradition. And, and you know, lived in the forest monastery. And there's this, you know, just this idea of this idyllic, beautiful pond, you know, uh, forest pool. He says, your mind, your chitta, your awareness, your heart mind will become still like a forest pool. Now, I remember when I first heard this, I didn't love it because I kind of think stillness is bullshit. I kind of think this idea that you're going to meditate your mind into shutting the fuck up and just being completely still, I, I kind of think it's bullshit. I think it's a temporary phenomena um, of being very concentrated and that it's not really the goal. So when I first heard this, I, just, I, got, I got attached to the imagery of stillness. 
And I forgot that the second part of this image that, that um, Arjun Chah brings in here is he says, your mind, you know, we could even say your heart will become still like a forest pool. He says, and all kinds of strange and wonderful animals will come to drink from the stillness. And once I grasped uh, that image, I was like, okay, this now this makes sense to me because he's not talking about a lobotomy of like, if you're really non-attached, you won't have thoughts. Because of course we're gonna continue to have thoughts. He's talking about the spacious awareness of non-clinging that the strange and wonderful animals are your thoughts and your emotions and your sensations that come, but don't perturb that spacious, non-attached, wise heart, wisdom. Does this make sense to you? The strange and wonderful fear that continues to arise, but there's that part of you that's not moved by the fear. And it's just awareness knowing, ah, bit of anxiety arising right now. And it's a strange and wonderful, you know, anxious, uh, I don't know what animal you want to give to the anxious, you know, kind of raccoon, I don't know what it is, something. Oh, uh, some lust, sensual desire, maybe not extreme lust, but just, you know, sensual desire, this, you know, wonderful peacock or whatever, <laughs> you know, fanning its feathers going kind of like looking for some action but unmoved still within that awareness that like this is just part of the human condition desires aversions fears emotions arise and pass and rather than being them i am anxious i am horny i am angry what meditation ends up doing is having a relationship to it a stillness a non-attached awareness of this is arising and I'm aware of it. I'm aware of anxiousness. I'm aware of the judging mind. I'm aware of my mind's tendency to compare to others. I'm aware of the mind's tendency to cling to I and me and mine and seeing that self-centered, self-referential, referential, whatever the word is, tendency of the mind, but not believing it, not being moved by it, having it an, uh, a stillness, that's just like, oh, there's that strange, wonderful self-centeredness animal again. Thinking about myself again, big surprise. A little ferret of self-centeredness <laughs> or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's a fucking predator that's, you know, coming to drink from the still forest pool. But we're unmoved by it because we're aware of all of those tendencies of mind. So I want to, a couple more things, and then I want to have a little bit of a dialogue with, with y'all about it. Um, so this statement, nothing is worth clinging to. I feel like, you know, there's those memes of like the, the person at the table with the like, change my mind. So like, I feel like I want to, like, that's a part of what I want to do with you. Like, nothing is worth clinging to change my mind like prove me wrong um now the piece here is nothing is worth clinging to if you're committed to not suffering because it's not possible to cling and not suffer at the same time so if you're 
idea, your ideal is I'd like to not suffer, then non-clinging is necessary. So I want to make that as a sort of a statement. We can discuss it in a minute. The other piece I want to add in my own evolution and, and exploration with non-attachment is um, where's the line between non-attachment and irresponsibility? Because, you know, it's a little, you know, making these strong, like, don't cling to anything ever. But at what point would not clinging, and, and I don't know uh, what, what, it is, what the word is, but um, be irresponsible. And so maybe it's not clinging, but it's, mm, one of the ways I get my mind around this is the difference between attachment and connection. And so sometimes when we say non-attachment, we think non-connection, separateness, uh, maybe even avoidance. And non-clinging, I use my hand uh, model puppets, um, connection is non-clinging. And the, the Buddhist ideal is a connected non-attachment. So, right, non, this is non, this is clinging. And the problem with clinging to each other and relationships or even our views and opinions or situations in the world is that whatever you're clinging to is in a process of change. The person you're clinging to, the uh, community that you're clinging to, the culture, the philosophy, is, it's in a process of change in some way or another. It's, it's evolving. And, and, and so our attachment to it gives us the rope burns of like oh i'm trying to hold on to this person who's changing or this community that's changing or this situation that's evolving in one way or another part of the reason i bring that up is because i have seen in my own life my own practice where i've taken sometimes non-attachment a little too um, more like in the detachment uh, and avoidant and, and even irresponsible. Um, I mean, I was in a situation with, with our community and with uh, my role as a Dharma teacher a few years ago where um, I was being encouraged to go away. And, there, and then there was this experience that I had where I was like, well, I could be just be non-attached to teaching and I could just... I could just go away. I'm being encouraged by some of my adversaries to go away. Some of the people who I've, you know, brought in to help run the community, they were like, you know, why don't you just go away? And I was like, well, I couldn't. And I was looking at like, could I be not attached to teaching? Could I be not attached to my role as, you know, a meditation teacher and running the nonprofits and refuge recovery and all of the other things? And there was a part of me that um was like yeah i could let it go right maybe it's you know maybe the 20 years of teaching was enough and maybe it's i maybe i let it go and there was other people who sort of intervene and there was a i did have an internal sense of like it doesn't feel right to to let it go um but I, but I feel like I could be okay without it I, I mean I don't feel like I need it I'm not attached to it but it doesn't feel quite right 
And it was actually other wiser voices in my life, people saying like, dude, that would be so irresponsible for you to abandon the Sangha, abandon the people uh, at, that want you to support them in their practice and in their study and, and development of the Buddhist path. And I had to really look at, okay, well, where's this line between not being attached to our roles, not being attached to, but also not being so non-attached that we too quickly uh, absolve responsibility and, and commitment to showing up and uh, for the commitments that we've made. In um, one of the questions I always get is, how do we practice non-attachment in intimate loving relationships? Sexual, intimate, how do you do it? Um, I mean, on some level, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's very likely one of the reasons why the Buddha uh, was celibate and why um, you know celibacy is a, um, strong in you know kind of option in, in buddhist community because uh, we are wired to cling to pleasure we're wired to get attached to people that we feel love for um, so showing up in an intimate relationship without clinging um, is a tall order I'm not sure that it's impossible. Uh, I don't. I've, I don't have the ability to do it. Um, what I've seen is a, a an increased ability to maintain the connection. Because ideally, that's when it feels best in relationship is when you're in that place of mutual loving, passionate. It doesn't even have to be you know passionate, but just that connection. That's when it feels best. But when either of us starts trying to control each other, which is what clinging is, it's a form of controlling, grasping, saying, I need you to not, I want you, need you to be the way I want you to be and not the way that you, <laughs> you necessarily are. And then that sort of like, ooh, that hurts. And often the overcorrection of like, well, I better detach, disconnect, and then come back into the, loving non-attached connection and so intimate relationship probably if you're consciously approaching it with the intention to be non-attached is going to be the dance of non-attached connection clinging detaching non-attached connection clinging detaching you know and then maybe more of kind of like oh seeing that and then readjusting seeing that and then readjusting saying like oh i'm trying i'm being controlling let go i'm being attached let go and not having to do as big of a swing into the detachment and staying connected. Does that make sense? Non-attachment non is, is connection. Well, there, I think a couple of weeks ago, somebody asked the question, I think it was here, about... Um, there's three, there's four levels of enlightenment. Can somebody ask that in here a couple of weeks ago? So there's three, uh, the first level of enlightenment in the Theravadan Buddhist perspective, it's called stream entry. 
In order to gain stream, stream entry, um, there are three levels of wisdom that have to, you have to directly experience. Um, one is that you no longer have any doubt in the Dharma. You're no longer kind of contemplating, uh, is, is it true or not? You know, you've directly experienced that the Dharma, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, the impermanent, you know it. There's, you know, faith, a verified faith in what we call Buddhism. Um, that's the other anyway the, there's three there the other the, the one that i'm wanting to talk about tonight is um that one of them is that there's no longer any attachment to the rites and rituals or the identification with being a buddhist i think this is really and uh, speaks a little bit to that non-attached but still connected so monks like Ajahn Chah or, you know, have reached this place where they're no longer attached to being a monk or being identified with like, that's who I am, but they continue to play that role. No longer attached to um, the rites, the rituals of, you know, chanting the right thing at the right time and, you know, doing the right ritual and obeying all of the precepts of how they show up and no longer attached to it, but continuing to do it, continuing to live in that way, follow their precepts, live in an ethical way, but that internal attachment. And you, do you know that feeling? I don't know. Some of you are new enough to Buddhism that maybe you haven't experienced this yet, but often when you're new to something, you can get kind of like that convert attachment and maybe even use your buddhism to judge other people or maybe somebody's done it to you of like oh, well that wasn't very buddhist of you <laughs> or like uh, like uh, somebody's doing a little gossiping or something and you, you kind of do that like but that's a uh, wrong speech and you're sort of attached to like hey i'm gonna police other people about how they <laughs> you know how buddhist they are and you know or how buddhist are you and um <clears throat> I feel like that's one of the things that as maturity and non-attachment, you're less likely to be too worried about how other people are, are showing up. And I think I, I said that thing last week that um, about the two monks crossing the stream and one of them breaks their precepts by carrying an elderly woman across and then puts them down. And then the other monk is still just attached to like, you broke your precepts. And, um, you know, you touched a woman and that's against our precepts to, you know, to touch the, the opposite sex. And, um, and the monk, you know, who we call him a, a stream enterer, he's not attached. He's like, yeah, yeah, I did it, but I put her down. I let go of that way back there. <laughs> You're the one that's still holding on to, so attached to our precepts. I'm, I, you know, that seemed like the appropriate time to break the precept, to be of service in that way. So let's use the rest of the time. We got 20 minutes for you to think about non-attachment and where are the places 
uh, in your life where you're resisting letting go or where you maybe philosophically think like we can't let go. Um, let's discuss it. Because this is one of those ultimate teachings that does not address all of the relative societal uh, issues that we face. And we don't want to use non-attachment as complacency. Uh, and so maybe, maybe I will say this because my own feeling and view is that in uh, conjunction with trying to live my life in a non-attached way, uh, on one hand, I also feel very passionate about trying to create a positive change on this planet without it being something that I'm clinging to and suffering about and creating unnecessary stress for myself, but very much passionate about uh, what can I do and how can I show up and how can I encourage others to show up in a, in a way that's going to create uh, more justice, more equality, more uh, positive change. I like that term rather than like we're going to fix it, but move the needle in the right direction, accepting that the world is, we're not going to end war. We're not going to end inequality. We're not going to end oppression, but let's try anyways. <laughs> You know, we're not going to end it, but let's try anyways. Let's let's try to move in that direction without being attached and suffering about the way it is. So what are your thoughts, questions, comments? I see some hands online. Uh, how about in the room? Think about if you have any questions or comments. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Hi, Noah. Thank you. Welcome. Uh, thank you so much for your service. Um, so when you were talking about your experience a couple of years ago, uh, and, and how you were going to let it go because you saw that as attachment, my, my immediate thought was, uh, a parent and their child or, someone who I love um, with all my heart and and would need it is in need of my protection um, you know I I would fight I would fight for that person mm -hmm. and I don't necessarily see that as attachment um, because I believe that it would be possible to, um, I'm not saying that I'm there yet, but it would be possible to hold that person in, in a gently cupped hand, not clinging to them. And if they passed, you know, to let them go, but do everything in my, not everything, but within reason, <laughs> uh, to protect that person and defend them from harm. Um, so, you know, I'm really glad that your wise friends stepped up and showed you reason <laughs> because, you know, I'm grateful for you still being here. Um, but I, I think like it, it's very easy to go too far with the Buddhist, uh, I, well, the idea of non-attachment in particular, 
Um, and, you know, I think case in point, you know, your conflict about whether should I leave, should I stay? Um, and I think that it could cause harm if one is not uh, mindful and uses their skill and wisdom to really kind of contemplate whether or not this is something that I am attached to or something that requires my attention. So, um, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to say that and I, I would love to hear your response, but I do want to just add, I actually was sent a link today to, there's this doctor who, uh, a doctor of neuroscience, who's also a Buddhist, and he has been studying mindfulness um, since the early 2000s. And he was actually given an audience with the Dalai Lama, along with some other scientists. And um, the Dalai Lama actually said, um, you have to continue this work. You are going to change the world for the better. And um, if I die, or if you die and you go to hell, I will come back as a demon and I will haunt you to make you continue your work. Now, All right, All right Laura, you've totally lost us there. But um, I think that most of your reflections, you know, make sense. And that is a good image of, um, yeah, the responsibility of parenting or, or friendship or relationship where um, there's a commitment to connection and to showing up and doing uh, what we can do for each other. Um, Derek, go ahead. Sorry, I was trying to unmute myself. Um, so one thing I've noticed with myself uh, when it comes to motivation is I think so often I've gotten into the habit of beating myself up as a way to get things done, to get out of bed, to get to work, to clean my apartment, you know, and then even more in a grander sense, some of the goals and aspirations I've had for my life. And I find it hard to strike a balance between getting things done and then, okay, then I have a good day where I'm really letting go. But I feel like I just like might be comfortable staying in bed all day or comfortable being lethargic. And I feel content. But then, you know, when it comes to the next day, I'm like, man, I didn't really get much done this week. And then I back to well, beat myself up again and kind of how to break that cycle and find the balance. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so tricky. Like we could certainly use non-attachment to be complacency and just be like, well, I'm just going to let go of cleanliness and I'm just going to let go of, I'm going to let go of showing up to work and my responsibilities. And, and um, of course that's not, I guess I didn't say this earlier. I think a good frame for this is um, we're going to look at, am I creating suffering? And is there something that I could let go of that will help alleviate suffering? Because uh, I know I'm making this kind of nothing is worth clinging to, but maybe we don't have to worry about clinging too much if it's not creating suffering. And if you're really looking at it, um, like even that thing around, you know, attachment to being Buddhist, the rites and rituals. Um, sometimes, you know, like being a little bit uh, connected to, maybe even a little bit attached to your meditation practice. What a good thing to be attached to, 
If you're going to be, you know, being attached to, you know, eating healthy, exercising, like doing things, you know, like there's some good things that we should feel passionately connected to. And, uh, but then, you know, when you get that day where you're traveling and you don't get your workout or you don't get your meditation the way that you usually do, don't suffer, let go, you know, but don't let go so much that you're like, oh, I'm so non-attached. I don't even meditate. That's how non-attached I am. You know, we don't want to go too far with it. Like, for sure, do do what needs to be done. Any questions in the room? Yeah, please, Mac. Yeah, I remember um, in that book, Food for the Heart, the Ajahn Chah book. Maybe you can fill in some of the blanks of the parable, but he talks about like some monk who's in his hut, yeah, and he's meditating, and there's a hole in the in the ceiling, and the water comes down. And he's like. Like hitting him on the head, so he just moves over to the other side, and the water's still dripping. And he's like, "Oh, I'm just gonna let the water leak. I'm just gonna continue to meditate because I'm so not attached to everything." And that was really insightful for me because when I first approached Buddhism, I was like, "Did I just say fuck it and like let go of everything and just like renounce everything and go and meditate all the time?" But it's like striking the balance. Right? Striking the balance. I don't know if you could hear Max at home, but he was saying that um, there was a story in this uh, Ajahn Chah book that we read about a monk who was doing this sort of irresponsibility in the name of, of non-attachment, where his house that he was living in, the roof was leaking, but he's like, well, I'm so non-attached, I'll just get out of the way of the leak until like the place was dilapidated. And finally, Ajahn Chah or somebody came and was like, why are you letting your house fall apart that's totally irresponsible like take care of your home you know and it doesn't have to be clinging and greed in order to like fix the fucking roof <laughs> you know it's just it's you can just do that that's that's the right thing to do yeah okay go ahead um thanks Noah, for the talk i i mean that was my thing was the parent and child thing that is where i where I find so much attachment, but I guess what I what I tell myself, which is still not easy to do, is like I can do the right things. I can I can strongly suggest that homework gets done. I can strongly suggest all the stuff, but ultimately I have to let go of the outcome, right? That's what so I can I can do the thing and be responsible and fix the roof, but you know, it may still leak and and I have to let go of the outcome. And that's I I feel like maybe for me that that's where the the difference is between the irresponsibility and the and the non-attachment is I'm not attaching to the outcome, but I can have the desire and the wish to write and do all that stuff. Like to suggest that my child go take a bath, you know, and whatever. And um and right what's what's that what's that is it an anagram what do you uh for love let others voluntarily evolve mm -hmm. um so it's it's like that right letting go of the outcome but not being so complacent that you just don't try yeah that's i think that i think that's it you know i'm i'm, I'm a terrible parent my my 11 year old son has a couple of times lectured me about how I need to be more strict with him. 
and how I have to stop letting him eat ice cream and how I need to make him eat more vegetables. And, um, and I'm just like, who the fuck are you? <laughs> but it's interesting because, you know, uh, and that, you know, conflict avoidance and that I want to be generous and loving and I'm like, oh, you want to have ice cream? Yeah, fuck it, have ice cream. And then him kind of being like, you know what? That's not healthy for me. I'm like, well, then don't have ice cream. He's like, well, I'm going to have it if you let me have it. It's your job as a parent to say no. And like him teaching me to be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm a parent. No, no ice cream. And then he's like, what do you mean I can't have any ice cream? It's fucked up. You're the worst parent. Um, so I like what you're saying, Kay. Like, of course, it's our job <laughs> to, uh, you know, encourage healthy behaviors and study and homework and all of that um and i that's again where i think i get a little um I could use a bit more responsibility in my in my role sometimes as a parent and uh not be too non-attached about their education and their ice cream intake um nikita go ahead Thank you, Noah, for your dharma and my dharma. You affect my dharma a lot, and all of us. Um, this is a okay. So we all know that <clears throat> a couple of weekends ago, guy enters family home, eighteen-year-old celebrating birthday kills her in front of the kids and the wife, the mom, dad, and kidnaps a couple of them, right? And not taking sides, but um, in the Bhagavad Gita, right, Krishna at one point goes out and kills people because there's nothing else to do, right? We have conflicts and if somebody's coming at me with a gun or coming at my family, right? I have to kill them and not be attached or think that I'm, and of course that's where the Buddhists you know, did this, the, the martial arts and they developed like a way to not kill, but disable. How does that square with forgiveness? And So is the question about um, <laughs> self-defense? Yes and forgiveness and non-attachment if you're taking actions you know yeah um the buddha seemed to be a totally committed pacifist totally committed to non-violence and and there was no even self-defense in the buddha's original teachings that i can that i know of um and you know that kind of uh, nikita's referring to like you know as buddhism evolves into china and korea and japan and the samurai culture and the you know martial arts and all of a sudden there's like shaolin and wu-tang and you know like there's like buddhist monks that are like kick-ass martial artists 
Um, I remember one of my favorite Kung Fu movies, there was a quote that me and my friends used to throw around uh, where there's this Buddhist monk killing somebody who had killed somebody. And the guy that he's killing says like, you can't kill me, you're a Buddhist monk. And the guy stabs him with some sword or something. And he says, even the Buddha punished evil. <laughs> now this is not Buddhism at all. It's, you know, martial arts, you know, and, and the way that Buddhism changed as it went through the different countries and encountered that kind of martial arts scene. And um, the Buddha himself seemed to be 100% of a pacifist and completely nonviolent, and that he was very willing to do that sort of nonviolent protest. And there's many examples of where he was going to the front lines of battles and wars and speaking and trying to consult with the different generals and kings and warlords and trying to, you know, talk to them about the karma of violence and the karma of war and um so he was i i would think in some ways the buddha was like a uh, an anti-war activist and a non-violent activist but there's nowhere that he said and sometimes you can kick someone's ass um if they attack you first you know like the hindu bhagavad-gita rationalization for for war and murder um so it's tricky because um, you know it's one of the places where I I wonder like is there a line like so total nonviolence, but if someone attacks you, is there a nonviolent way? You know, like this example, you know, if they're coming to kill your children and kidnap your, you know, of course you're gonna want to and probably will do whatever you can to stop it. But there's a line between. Um, trying to protect and, and stop an attack and then being so angry that you uh, have retribution that you go past stopping violence into becoming violence and saying like well you hurt me so now i'm going to hurt you even though the attack is over i've stopped it i kicked you in the nuts maybe you can kick someone in the nuts and we can call it nonviolence because it's in defense or you can spray them with the mace or you can whatever it is um but then if it's stopped and you start hitting them and you start kicking them when they're down because you're so angry that's when we cross the line into violence um you know maybe i'll end with this because i have been thinking about it a bit and had a conversation on this retreat last um a couple of weeks ago, it was a retreat and there was a uh, war veteran that was on the retreat and he was talking to me about all of the trauma of, you know, that he experienced from being in Afghanistan and being in war and um, and that, you know, kind of being out of that wanting so badly to create a positive change and to uh, and, and just not knowing how to and, and the sort of depression and, you know, that was going on for him around like, how do I live in this world? where it's just uh, an ongoing cycle of what did he call it empire making you know and it's just one empire after the next killing and stealing and oppressing in order you know the greed of the world that we live in and how do we accept this how do we live in this isn't there something we can do to stop the empires from continuing to you know bomb each other and kill each other and you know um and you know what i shared with him and 
because I have the same thought, same question, same feeling. But how Buddhism has helped me with that, where the Buddha, non, you know, nonviolent political, social activist in so many ways, but also a perspective that says it's the way it is here. That's the way it's always been here. We live in a realm, we call it samsara. It's a realm of greed and hatred and delusion. And human beings create empires and, and you know, out of greed and out of ignorance and out of hatred. Um, create religions out of greed and out of ignorance and out of hatred. Create, you know, philosophies out of greed and out of ignorance and out of hatred and create societies and capitalism and socialism and communism and all of these, you know, there's some pretty good ideas, but none of them seem to work for creating any level of, of real equality and, and peace on this planet. Um, so that level of non-attachment, that acceptance of this is the world that we live in, and not suffering about like, I can't accept this, but acceptance not as complacency, acceptance of it's the way it is, what can we do? And doing what we can do, speaking out, uh, engaging in, with you know, our own ignorance, our own internal ignorance and confusion, um, and then you know, being a positive part of, uh, of change in the world, without suffering so much about like it just I, I just can't accept this um because it's unfortunately the way that it seems to have always been pretty much empire building that's the history of the planet so far um so that balance between non-attachment and creating a positive change We'll leave it there for tonight. Good to see everybody. I'll be here the next couple of weeks and then I'm out of town for a couple of weeks. We have posted the New Year's Eve intention setting ceremony. Is it up, Sebastian? It's up on the website. If you want to spend um, Sunday, December 31st here at Against the Stream or on Zoom or in the room, uh, registrations available for that now and it, we limit it a little bit so that the room doesn't overflow unlimited um, ability to attend on zoom we light a candle we take the five precepts we uh, do some meditation meditative reflection everybody's invited more info on on that on the website and i'm in the midst of scheduling a couple of retreats for next year and we'll get that info up soon um I see my mom up there um, sending me telepathic messages to announce that she has made new merchandise. Um, she's got new hats, Dharma punks and against the stream and meditate and destroy. Um, there's new sweatshirts and t-shirts. There's a bunch of new merch for, you know, and we sell some of it here for those of you in person, but actually a lot of stuff that she has on the website we don't have here. So check out the Against the Stream merch section and uh, order some stuff. If you, if you buy stuff from us for the holidays or whatever, it's also a way to support the nonprofit. All of that money just goes back into uh, paying the rent around here. So thank you in advance for your um, 
you know, monetary support and your, um, you know, shopping uh, habits that will help us in this, you know, community. So I'll leave it there for tonight. May any goodness that comes from our practice be felt to transform our own lives. And may we share it with each other in this community and outward in all directions with all living beings. So thanks and um, classes done by donation, be as generous as you can. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.